Today we come nearer to the end of our study of the seven churches, and it makes me sad to come closer to the end because it is such good material, but I can promise you on the basis of God's Word that all Scripture is profitable for us. So whether we're going through a passage that is particularly given to the doctrine of the church, or as we'll find in chapters 4 and 5, the glory of God and Jesus Christ, we will find great benefit and help for our hearts, our lives, uh, for every day. Uh, But we have greatly benefited from this study. I hope you have, even as I have. Now, I will not go through a complete review of all the seven churches to catch us up to speed. I will bring us back at least for a moment to the beginning of chapter 3 of the church of Sardis. We read in the first words of chapter 3, verse 1, this was the church where it said, I know your works, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This is the dead church. But lest we wonder what made that church dead, we, we tried to have our study and, and consider what the rest of the things that Jesus said about this church. What he said was not good, what he said was good. This was a church that was dead because it lacked integrity. Lacked integrity given the fact that Jesus said to them, I have not found your works complete. He was expecting to find something. He didn't find all he was expecting to find there. Of course, he did find just a few who were unsoiled. They had integrity. They had integrity in that they were unsoiled. But most there at that church did not. So, how do we know if a church is dead or not? has really nothing to do with the popular opinion, has everything to do with the church's integrity. Are they doing the things that God expects? Are they keeping themselves unsoiled from sin? A church that is doing what God wants them to do, keeping themselves unsoiled by sin, will be a church that has integrity, will be a church that's alive. This church was dead, and Christ calls them to wake up All right, is it coming? Yes, good. Let's try it again. Let's try it again. From the top. A, uh, a traditional picture of an American Christmas, as the song goes, is chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Now, that is a wonderful picture because there are some of us who really appreciate a fire fireplace with a fire. It's the kind of scene where you want to get on the couch with a blanket and curl up. Maybe you have some coffee or some cocoa and just enjoy the winter. That's just a beautiful picture. It's a picture that I've never actually witnessed, chestnuts roasting on, on an open fire. But you can appreciate the fact that that kind of scene is just one that's attractive. When you compare that kind of scene to a little match that's sitting here, You don't look at the match and think, you know, I really just want to get a blanket, get on the couch and curl up with a cup of coffee and and just enjoy myself. Why is that? Because this is nothing, it would seem. It's a light that's, even now, it's gone out. But for a moment there, it was a light that was just on the brink of going out, a small little entity. That's a bit of what we're going to consider today. 
as we look through this letter to the church at Philadelphia, and particularly as we reread the other letters that Christ wrote to the churches, this one is unique in several ways. Perhaps the most uh, popular way of noticing the difference, or just seeing the, the difference that, that every commentator is going to tell you about, this church is just like the church at Sardis because Christ had nothing wrong to say about them. You don't read this passage and find a list of positive features and then a but, and then a list of negative features. So there's nothing wrong said about this church. That's one feature that's unique about this church. But in addition to that, as we read through this letter, Christ talks about himself a lot. You probably saw this when we read the letter to the church at Thyatira, but when we read through that letter, which is the longest of the letters, Christ talked about his judgment a lot towards them. In this case, he talks a lot about himself, but in a very positive way. Of course, Christ talks about himself in the opening of each letter and the closing of the letters where he gives his self-designations and he gives his promises, but this letter stands out because of how positive Jesus Christ is, telling the people there what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do. Christ talks about himself a lot. I want you to think about that for a moment. Why would someone address a group and then talk mainly about himself and not talk about the group? Given that this passage, this book of Revelation is a prophetic book, as well as a letter, Christ must have spoken about himself for the particular benefit of his hearers. This church needed to hear about him, about who he is, about what he has, about what he's done, about what, how he is disposed towards them, and about what he will do for them. He spoke all of those things about himself in order to cheer this church on toward further faithfulness. Even as we learned in our last study in the church at Sardis that Jesus desires integrity in the church, here, in the letter to the church at Philadelphia, we learn that Jesus desires faithfulness in the church. Jesus Christ desires faithfulness in his church. Now, we will learn this And the fact that Jesus is affirming faithfulness in the church in five different points, five points, three of which we will cover today and two we'll cover next week. The first three of these points come from the fact that Jesus cheers the church in Philadelphia by describing his authority, by assuring them of what they had, and by validating their faithfulness. He did three things. He described his authority, he assured them of what they had, and he validated their faithfulness. And from the fact that he did that, we learn several lessons. We learn to be emboldened by his authority, to be encouraged by his assurances, and to be reassured by his acknowledgments. Let's go to the first point where we learn that Christ wants our church to be emboldened by his authority. Verse 7, we see how Christ cheered the church in Philadelphia by describing his authority. Let's read the scriptures together. Revelation 3, 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, Thus saith the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, 
who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. As you see in the King James and the NAS in front of you, you'll notice that Jesus asserted who he is, word is comes up twice, and what he has. Who he is, what he has. And Christ expects us to recognize who he is. He expects us to recognize his identity because Christ asserted his authority by who he is. No one else could be described in the terms that he describes himself. He first is the Holy One. Christ is the Holy One. Often when people think of holiness, they think of sinlessness. Someone who's holy is without sin. That's the popular way of understanding it. But then we turn to a book of the Bible like Genesis 38. We see the fact that Judah referred to a cult prostitute as a holy one. And we realize that holiness can't be equal to sinlessness because a cult prostitute is not a sinless situation. The point is that holiness is a far broader term than sinlessness. Holiness is uniqueness, distinction, or separateness. Just as a cult prostitute is unique and distinct from the normal situation for a woman in society, even so God is unique and distinct from all other created beings. Holiness is a categorical matter where God is in a category all by himself. Hannah, you remember, prayed in 1 Samuel 2. She confessed, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. Holiness is God's uniqueness, his distinction. Moses sang in Exodus 15, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? There's no one like him. He's one of a kind, utterly unique. This truth is not something new to us. It ought not be new to us because we sing the hymn on a regular basis, Holy, Holy, Holy. And in the third stanza, we confess, Only thou art holy, there is none beside thee. We define exactly what holiness is all the time around here. So we shouldn't think of God's holiness as one of his attributes. Instead, holiness encompasses all of those things because holiness is the attribute of deity. The Holy One is God. The angel said to Mary, The child to be born will be called holy. Just another child? No. The Son of God. There's no other child like this child. This one is the Son of God. Christ is God. And he speaks as God. I haven't brought this up in a moment, in a while in our series, but at the beginning of every single one of these letters, it begins with, thus saith, which is a phrase that is used only by the Lord. That God, the Lord, is speaking. And Jesus is speaking in all of these letters, and he is standing in the place of God because he is God. He is the Holy One. We also learn that Christ is the true one. Often when we think of truth, we think of truth in relation to speech. Someone either speaks truly or he speaks falsely. And certainly it's the case that Jesus Christ speaks the truth. Therefore, the church of Philadelphia ought to believe what he says. But Christ himself is true, not just his speech. He is genuine. Jesus is the the real, the true, the genuine Messiah. And that's what the Jews wrongly refused to believe. The Jews, as it says in John 1, Christ came to his own, his own received him not. 
And even as we look at church history laid out in the book of Acts, the Jews continued to refuse Jesus as the true Messiah. They persecuted the church, cast them out of their synagogues. Jesus Christ describes himself to this church as the Holy One, as the true one. Well, why? Because they needed to be affirmed that that's who he truly is, even as we need to know that. Christ expects us to recognize his identity. Secondly, now, Christ expects us to recognize his influence. We know that because Christ asserted his authority by what he had. Look at verse 7. He says he's the holy and true one. He goes on to say, who has the key of David. We ask ourselves, what is that? And what does it matter? Well, look at the cross-reference. You see Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. The key of David comes from that text. The key was given to Eliakim, who was given the authority to open and shut. And in that context, Eliakim replaces Shebna. Shebna is the steward who is over the household of David. And for what we can understand, God is committing Shebna's authority into Eliakim's hand. It's symbolized by giving him the key of David. The point is, he is given authority to give God's people access or to refuse access. That's what we normally think of when we think of a key. The person with the key has access, and he can open the door for someone else to have access. Or he can not open the door, refuse to open it so they don't. So, Eliakim, then, is some type of Christ who controls the keys of the kingdom. The fact that Christ has the key establishes his authority as the Davidic ruler. He's the one who can grant or deny access to his kingdom. Let's lay it out in the common lingo. We could say Christ has control of the gates of heaven. Right? You all understand that? He has the keys. That's authority. The person who controls that has authority. The fact that someone of this identity and having this kind of influence is speaking to the church in Philadelphia ought to encourage them. Who he is and what he has. It ought to encourage them because people like to have strength on their side. Just think for a moment. What kinds of people do team captains pick? The, strong, the smallest and the weakest? The strongest. The best. Team captains choose those who have strength. So here, at the beginning of the letter, there is a strong show of Jesus Christ asserting his identity and his influence, which is meant to embolden his people, that he aligns himself with them. You see, the church needs to know and needs to see this strong show, this show of authority. They also need to realize and know that this one with authority is on their side. That's what we come to next, our second point today. Christ wants our church to be encouraged by his assurances. We know that from the fact that Christ cheers this church of Philadelphia by assuring them of what they had. So far in the letter, we have seen that Christ spoke about himself. He described his identity. He has described his influence. Now he's going to talk specifically about his relation to the church. He does that at the beginning of verse 8 and at the end of verse 9. 
Christians. Let's look at Revelation 3.8. Christ says to them, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you, and then he goes on with what he started at the beginning of the verse. So just as Jesus Christ began to describe the Philadelphian church, he pauses. Every other letter, he speaks to them and just gives them a list. But he begins and then stops. And he stops in order to encourage them. There's a break in the thought. It's as if this phrase in the, in the midst of verse 8 is just a parenthesis. But it's for the purpose of encouraging them. You say, well, why, why would Christ speak to a church like this? In contrast with the way he spoke to all the other churches. I would say it must have been that this church really needed encouragement. Because some churches just really need encouragement. So Jesus gives it to them. What's his encouragement? He set before them an open door. This is what he has done. He has set before them an open door. And as readers of the Bible and familiar with various preaching on the book like this, it is often said that the open door in chapter 3, verse 8, is mission's opportunity. You know that as you look at the cross-reference. You see in the cross-reference, Colossians 4, 3, where Paul gives his testimony. And he calls on the people for prayer. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. Or the cross-reference you see is 1 Corinthians 16.9. A wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So Paul is giving wonderful testimonies about the opportunity for missions work, for gospel work. But it is often possible for people to take verses that they're familiar with and press them upon other passages. Now, it's always a good thing to interpret Scripture by Scripture, but we also have to be careful to interpret passages on their own merits. What is the text actually saying? So just to draw this out for you for just a moment, just imagine, a man opens a door for a woman. What's the expectation? She walks through it. Right. Christ has set an open door before the church. What does he expect? The church to walk through it. He's granting them access in order that they might be included. He's the one with the keys of David who grants access to the kingdom. So Christ sets before the church inclusion in his kingdom. And that's a bit of what we find in the other cross-reference, Acts 14, verse 27 where Peter reports how the church has seen the inclusion of the Gentiles. That was the open door. You say, even beyond this, when we consider the context, now we've not gone over this at length, we'll go over it more next week, but when we get to verse 9, we find out that there's some problems in Philadelphia. Because this promise, or this, this, um, this open door that has already been given to the church is in the context of the Jews. It seems that the Christians have been excluded by the Jews. The Jews are the people who claim to be the people of God, but they have ousted the Christians. And now Christ, who has the keys to the kingdom, is assuring this church of inclusion in the kingdom. We have to really appreciate the dynamic in Philadelphia. These people have been marginalized by those who profess to be the people of God, those who are significant in the community. 
but Christ comes to them and assures them on his authority that they have access to this kingdom, that they're included in his kingdom. So Christ expects us to be comforted by our access to the kingdom. Why would Christ do that for a church or speak to a church like this? Why would he put such an opportunity before them? We find out the end of verse 9. Because Christ has set his love upon them. And this is the gem that comes up at the end of verse 9 that I don't want us to pass over. Chapter 3, verse 9 says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that, and here it is, I have loved you. Christ expects our church to be comforted by his affection for his people. Because he has set his love upon them. There was a hostile dynamic between the Jews and the church in Philadelphia. And, the kind of, and, and this, you just have to imagine, if you can put, your, put, put yourself in that situation, you can understand in a hostile situation, that kind of situation leads to despair. Where people look at conservative Christians, and they call them extremists. They think that they have gone off the deep end. The kinds of people who believe the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God. They believe in the creation of all things by God in six literal days out of nothing. They believe in miracles, even the resurrection of the dead by the grace and working of Jesus Christ. That kind of belief is viewed as extremists. And it's to those people that Christ gives this assurance. To the church who's opposed and marginalized by society, he assures them of his love. They certainly weren't getting it from their society. Very likely they've been kicked out of the synagogue because they're extremists, because they believe Jesus is actually the Messiah. And Jesus assures them, no, you're recipients of my love. And being assured of his love, they ought to be encouraged to remain faithful despite what anyone else might be saying. And that truth for them is the same truth for us. No matter what other people might say, may we remember that we are the objects of God's love. That God loved the world. He demonstrated that by sending his son. That his son died for us while we were yet sinners. He has freed us from our sin. He has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. And he will return one day to take us to be with him forever in glory. That is the assurance of love that he gives to the church. Even when society doesn't love the church, Christ did. So friend, I don't know how all things are with you today. You might feel unloved by the people around you. But I want you to be encouraged with Christ's love for you. Because that's what he asserts here. He means to encourage the church by his assurance of love to them. So far as we looked at this passage, Christ has cheered the church by describing his own authority. And he's assured them of what they had. They had an open door. They have his love. And from that, we learn that Christ wants us to be emboldened by his authority and encouraged by his assurances. But now let's go to the third and final point for today. Christ cheers the church in Philadelphia by validating their faithfulness. Validating their faithfulness. By that, he wants our church 
to be reassured by his acknowledgments. Having considered what Christ said about himself in regard to the church, let's see what Christ says about them. Not about himself, not about his relation with them, what he says about them, what he knows about them. Verse 8, I know your works. Then you have the long parentheses. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. The ESV supplies three words, I know that, as if to take up the original statement once again. I know your works, that you have but a little power. And we think, well, that doesn't sound very good. Well, that's the point. Christ acknowledged they were small. He knew it. Obviously, this church's, church needed encouragement. And some might think that they were weak spiritually. But given what Jesus is about to say, we can't come to that conclusion. Instead, Jesus is acknowledging the size of their church. They're a little church because power arises from numbers. Think about Jesus or God's name, Jesus' name, but think about the Old Testament name, the Lord of hosts. The fact that he has command of the hosts of heaven shows that he has power. This church doesn't have a host of power. This church is limited in its influence because it's numerically small. They're a small church, and Jesus Christ acknowledges that. Again, we might be tempted to think that Jesus is disappointed with them, but that's not what the text allows us to come to. Read the rest of verse 8. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So Christ is not only acknowledging that they're small, he acknowledges that they're steadfast. And he's going to say that positively and negatively. He says it positively by saying they've kept his word. It means they've obeyed what he said. In the Great Commission, Jesus Christ not only said to make disciples and baptize them, he called upon the church to teach them all that I've commanded you. He wants them he wants his disciples to be observant disciples. And that's how Revelation describes God's people. Revelation 14, 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. That, that's just how we describe Christians. Christian people are obedient to Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. That's a Christian. We live in a day when many professing Christians attack other Christians who want to obey God. They call them legalists because they're carefully adherent to the Word of God. Indeed, some people are extremely religious. They do many religious things, but they don't do it in obedient response to the Word of God. And there the term would be well understood. When people don't act in response to the Word of God. But we need to let the words of Christ fall upon us. Christ wants his word kept. That's not a bad thing. He calls for it. He commends it. He expects it. That's how just saints are described. That is who loves him. People who keep his commandments are those who love him. 1 John 5, 3. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So this church has done a great thing. They've kept Christ's word. That can mean that they're obedient to it. It could also possibly mean that they've guarded Christ's word against any errors from false teachers or against the traditions of men that come in and crowd out what Christ has said. They haven't set aside what Christ said. 
Either way, the church has been very, very diligent in regard to what Christ has prescribed for them in his word. They knew God's word. Obviously, they must have read it. They must have meditated on it, Psalm 1, and benefited from it. They knew it, and they sought to live it. They were steadfast. That's how we understand it positively. Now, negatively, he says that they didn't deny his name. Here's, again, an indication that there must have been pressure in Philadelphia. There must have been opposition. This is not something academic where on a test they're denying Christ. This is real living. They're not ashamed of Christ, of what he said, or of his name. And even so, according to Mark 8, 38, the Son of Man is not going to be ashamed of them when he comes. Great encouragement for them. But this church is a faithful church even when there's pressure. Let's slip down to verse 10 then because we find another nuance to this. Jesus speaks of his knowledge of this church by saying, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Not the best translation for the ESV. You'd be better suited to look at the NAS or the King James there. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance. King James says, my patience. The point then is Christ is the example. These people have followed in the footsteps of Christ who endured the pressures around him. Tried and tempted, they like Christ endured. And Christ expects us to follow in his example. The endurance Christ expects of us, he has demonstrated for us. So we see in 2 Thessalonians 3, 5, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Hebrews 12, 3. <clears throat> Excuse me. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You see, as we go on and read the rest of Revelation, there's no mistake that Jesus is going to be referred to as the Lamb. Because it is the Lamb who endured even unto death and has conquered. And even so, the Christ, the church must follow in his footsteps to patiently endure even under pressure. So Christ looks at this church and he knows this church is a steadfast church. And that's not a small accomplishment. Let's draw two points from this in reverse order for our own encouragement, all right? So point B, Christ expects us to determine his approval by the faithfulness of the church. Determine his approval by the faithfulness of the church. Because that's what Christ pinpoints. Their faithfulness, their steadfastness, what they've done, what they've determined not to do. Thank you, hon. That's particularly important because most people will look at this church and look at what Christ approves of And they think that Christ approves of something else. They don't think that Christ approves of steadfastness. They think of size. The big church has Christ's approval. This church doesn't. They're small. We learn Christ expects us to refuse to determine his approval by the size of the church. Christ knew they were small. That wasn't a problem for him. 
He does not want us to look at a ministry, consider their size, and determine whether or not they're a success. I want us to compare churches just for a moment. The church right before this church, Sardis, they had a name, they had a reputation in their community, but Philadelphia is basically nothing. They're small. People would have spoken positively about the church in Sardis, but they would have scoffed at the church in Philadelphia as extremists. A few were extremists. Compare this church to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a city of over a quarter million people. This was the church where it was pastored by the likes of the Apostle Paul, the faithful Timothy, and the Apostle John, according to tradition. Philadelphia was more like a tiny country church. Brothers and sisters, what's Christ's thought on the matter? Do you have to be a big church like Ephesus to matter to him? Success is not measured in the size of the church. It's measured by faithfulness to Christ. So why did Christ point out the smallness of this church? Hopefully it's blatantly obvious to us. Let's just say it. The size of the church is often a source of great discouragement and difficulty. Most churches are actually small churches, and it's hard being a small church. You remember the prophet Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 19? He thought he was all alone, and he was despairing. And even so, being small often lends itself towards despair. And even as God spoke words of comfort to the prophet Elijah, Christ speaks words of comfort to the church in Philadelphia, and these words are for us to encourage us. Numbers don't matter. Now, let me give a warning. Not because I think that there's an issue currently with us, but I want us to have a razor-sharp understanding of what Jesus actually says here. Jesus acknowledged and he claims a small church. But that does not mean that every small church meets his approval. There are certainly churches that are small that have held on for years but they do not have the favor of God. Say, how can that happen? Well, it happens all the time in America. It happens in America because of religious freedom and lots of money. So there are lots of churches in America who are sustained by American money, but they have little care for Jesus Christ. They care about the church because they've always had a church there for decades, for centuries. Their, their family's gone to that church for years. They're steadfast for those reasons, because Christianity in some ways is acceptable in society. They're not there for Christ's sake. They're just there because that's, that's the good thing to do. Those days are about to come to an end in America, I think, where Christianity is in any way esteemed by anyone else. So let me warn us against thinking that smallness equals Christ's approval. It doesn't. I framed the point very carefully when I wrote it. Christ expects us to refuse to determine his approval by the size of the church. Because he doesn't make it the issue. Let me give us a test to evaluate the steadfast devotion of a church to Christ. Here's the test. When a problem arises, 
Do you post about the issue but never pray about the issue? Because the church that's steadfast will definitely be steadfast in prayer because they have to depend on God for everything. The other one probably is just has an agenda. So, so take that test and, and take it home with you this afternoon when you review the sermon and apply it to various aspects of your life. The things that you do, are you doing them because, well, that's just what you ought to do? Or are you doing them because it's active obedience to the Word of God? No matter what people say, how it comes across, how it's reviewed, liked or unliked. But let me, let me encourage us as we close. Most people look at churches and they look at their numbers in order to determine whether or not those churches are a success or to determine if those churches have any value. Visitors or even professing Christians, they walk into a church and they draw conclusions based on its size. They look at the nursery, it's small. They look at the, at the youth group, it's small or non-existent. They look at the gathering of the saints and they think a dozen or two. And they think, oh, I could never be here. It's the classic example of, of a family that hops from church to church looking for the best youth group. According to this passage, that is not the mind of Christ. He's not worried about how big the church is. He's worried about how faithful the church is. And we can't allow a visitor's opinion or the community's opinion of the church get to us. We have to let Christ's words speak to us. We can't think that how many folks are here is the measure of a successful church. One of the books that I had to read as part of my ordination was by Kent Hughes, Liberating Ministry from Success Syndrome. In a nutshell, it's a call to be faithful. Leave all the numbers, all that, that's, God's, that's in God's hands. You be faithful. And this kind of thing isn't what the average pastor thinks. It's not what the average church-going person thinks. It's not what the average community person thinks. They all think big church must be a good church, must have God's approval. That's wrong. Lord, keep us from that kind of mentality. But I would say, brothers and sisters in the Lord, there is a lot of value to be found in small numbers. Even this last week at prayer meeting, one of us thanked the Lord for paid bills. I personally have never heard a large church thank the Lord for paid bills. Why? Because they're not worried about that. you got tons of people, tons of money. Why would they ever thank the Lord for being able to pay the electricity bill? I mean, the books tell us a church takes at least 13 families to be self-sustaining. You need 10 tithing families to pay for the salary of the pastor. You need two families to pay for the building and the ministry. You need one pastor to tithe to support the missions ministry. And why is it that there are so many, the great majority of churches that are at or below that 13-family threshold? Well... In a lot of those churches, you'll actually find, if you knew, you'll find great financial sacrifice. The tithe is way back in the rearview mirror. They give so much more than that. They pray for the Lord's provision because they need it to keep the lights on. They're begging the Lord to sustain their ministry. 
They read God's word. They advance the gospel. But from the looks of it, they're really plain. I mean, you walk into their church often, you know, maybe a kid there, old person there. It's, it's not really impressive. You, you go in and they, they sing the songs, maybe feebly. They give sacrificially in secret. You don't see it, but they pray in secret. They read God's word in secret at home. They read it before their families. But when you, when you go and you look at their church, there's nothing flashy about them. It, it almost looks as if it's dead, but the thing about it is our society doesn't look at the value of a Bible that is threadbare or know about the value of people who just beg the Lord for his provision for all things in life, beg the Lord for the salvation of their family, for their friends, for their community. It's not flashy. But the thing about it is, is it meets Christ's approval. Christ approved of a small and steadfast church in Philadelphia. So, from this letter, we ought to see that Christ desires spiritual faithfulness. He spoke in such a way as to encourage them who are under great pressure. All they had was a little light. A little light. That wasn't very impressive. That wasn't very drawing. Wasn't very compelling. But the thing about it is, is Christ took notice of it and he commends it. And that's what we need to have in our thoughts about a church like Philadelphia, a small church. Father, encourage our hearts as we go now. Encourage our hearts with your thoughts and what you've said to churches that are small. Father, may they in their hearts be riveted on what true success is to be faithful to you, to be steadfast no matter the numbers, no matter the opposition, no matter the disparity. Uh, There are so many things that come from having limited resources. But, Father, we are thankful that we, we have such a ministry that calls us to really depend on you. Because as we'll find out uh, with the church coming up, they didn't depend on you because they had everything. They didn't need you, they thought. Father, thank you for your grace to us indeed. That things are lean so that we lean on you. Father, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.